As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. And use the coupon code APPENDIXDC for $5 off any new subscription. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of my adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hi, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 58 on Michael Moorcock's The Singing Citadel. My name is Jeff, and with me today, I have my symbiotic blade from which I draw my energy, otherwise known as Hoy. Hello. And we've also got the creator and host of the podcast, The Grognard Files, Dirk the Dice. Hello. Dirk, thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, it's great to have you. Thank you for inviting me. I've been excited about this all week. Now, one way that we like to start the show is by asking people how they got into gaming and how they found their way into the Appendix N. So I guess we're going to go ahead and throw that question your your direction. Um, well, I got into uh, gaming with my friend uh, Blythe, who uh, was celebrating 40 years of being friends uh, this month. Um, so we know wow. each other a long, long time. Um, and we, we were fascinated by little lead figures that were being sold at our local toy shop. And we didn't know what they were for. We were collecting them and we didn't know what they were for. We weren't even painting them. We just liked the look of them. They had uh, exotic names like uh, Hobgoblin with a Halbard and uh, Advancing advancing Salaman. And uh, we wondered what the heck they were. And uh, shortly after, um, a set of um, lead figures in a box set came out with RuneQuest, and they were even more exotic. There were things like jackal bears, ducks with uh, suits of armour on, and um, the, uh, the warriors had names like Orlanthe and Humat and Isaris, so they all had really, you know, it sounded like another world. And then we made the connection between these lead figures and the game RuneQuest, and uh, we took it from there. We took the game home. Um, it actually went back. We took it back to the toy shop because um, it didn't have a board and we thought they'd left something out. Um, but they... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, th- I think we, we went back and we went home with a, a, a box of Risk. Um, and then um, a few a few months later, we actually uh, saw an article in a magazine that was produced by Marvel over in the UK called Starburst. And it had an article in there that explained what the games were and how you played them. So we thought we'd, it was a breakthrough. It's an epiphany. And because of that magazine, we fell down a rabbit hole and we rebought that copy of uh, RuneQuest and uh, the same box. Uh, and uh, we, we started playing from there and we've, we've not looked back really. That's really cool. And how did you come across the Appendix N as a concept? Well, of course, we had uh, something. It's a long story, this, so bear with me. We had uh, something <laughs> We had something called the Prime Directive amongst our group of friends, which meant that if you were a games master of a game, you had sole ownership of that game. 
nobody okay. else was allowed to um, buy it because otherwise you could look in the White Dwarf magazine and uh, read the adventures and, every, uh, and you'd know all the secrets. So we have this rule. And a friend of ours, uh, Simon, he got hold of uh, Dungeon Master's Guide, um, but he couldn't afford to buy anything else. Um, so D&D, we played for years and years with just the Dungeon Master's Guide. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we'd never had any magic uh, spells. We just had magic items. Um, so, <laughs> and no and, classes? And the only character classes we could have were the ones that you got free with White Dwarf. Um, so we had, <laughs> we had a hoary class, a necromancer, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, nothing, nothing normal. I think I, I think I want to, I, I want to play that D and D now. That's yeah, amazing. this sounds like a really awesome take on D and D. So, so RuneQuest was my appendix N because they have a bibliography, which is a an appendix N uh, in the back of uh, RuneQuest. Amazing. And in in there, it's it's very very similar to uh, Gygax's uh, appendix N, but with this one. It relates more to uh, myths, um, so um, Celtic and um, Icelandic myth, because RuneQuest Glorantha is very much based in um, retelling mythic stories. Um, so as well as the swords and sorcery classics, you've got a lot of things like uh, Najal Saga and, uh, and, and stuff like that. Um, and um, because it's... A much more simulationist game than D&D. There's also some references to uh, where you can find out about ancient armor and things like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, does it give you specific Michael Moorcock texts to read, or does it just recommend him as an author overall? Okay, this is what it says about Michael Moorcock. It says, Elric, in brackets, and others... They're not kidding, are they? Uh, a basic source <laughs> of modern fantasy. So that's all it says. You know, a basic all right. source of modern fantasy. <laughs> does basic mean um, like like essential, or does it you basic yeah. meaning just like very rudimentary? Do you think in this case? <laughs> <laughs> I I think I think it's uh, put in there as an afterthought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, it, it, it's more it's more effusive about uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which you know obviously would uh, would make uh, Morcott very happy. But, uh, exactly, right. <laughs> yeah. but I guess that ties into with Greg Stafford's um, concern with with mythology and and, and you know world you know uh, cosmo- cosmology, right? In a sense yes. that Morcock is a little bit more chaotic and inconsistent, whereas Tolkien is creating a myth cycle. Um, so that, yeah. that's why he might be more concerned with that. I, I I think you're right because um, Moorcock isn't interested in uh, world building. He's interested in drama, dramatic incident, incident adventure, and using uh, vivid shorthand, isn't it, to give the idea, the impression of uh, places and situations. So, yeah, you're right. Probably, you know, some some of the other examples in here are very much based uh, root and branch in those kind of archetype myths, whereas. I think what Moorcock's doing in a lot of cases is disrupting those myths and inventing ones of his own. Yes. Speaking of which, this week we're reading The Singing Citadel, which is nothing if not disruptive, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So Michael Moorcock's The Singing Citadel. Let's go ahead and discuss which version of the book that we're working with. Uh, today, I have the 1970 uh, Berkeley, Berkeley Medallion paperback. 
Um, and the cover is by Gail Berwin. So it's also pretty exciting to have a female artist doing an appendix and cover. That's a, that's a bit unusual. And it's kind of these two kind of um, statuesque lion things in this strange kind of multicolored plane. I'm not really sure exactly what's happening, but I'm digging it. Uh, Hoy, what are you working with? I am reading the Kindle edition of the Del Rey Elric to Rescue Tana Lauren uh, anthology that came out in around 2008. So that's part of that whole Del Rey series where they sort of um, republished the Elric stories in publishing order rather than internal chronology. So this okay. is the second volume. It's got some um, uh, uh, Michael Kaluta illustrations, but I'm reading the Kindle edition, so you don't really get to see them in their full glory. Mm. And how about you, Dirk? Um, at the start of the 90s, I, I unfortunately got rid of all my collection of uh, Moorcock because I uh, managed to get the Millennium Orbit uh, Orbit editions, these big trade paperbacks where they Ooh. brought them together in chronological order. Um, so I got rid of my original. Uh, I, had, I had loads of the graphs. They were published over in the UK by Grafton, which was an imprint um, that was owned by a television company, a local television company, actually. And they brought out Jack Vance and um, Michael Moorcock in the UK. Um, and I had, I had loads of them. I, I loved them, but... You know, I, I, I rationalise them into this. But, of course, the Singing Citadel is more than just the single story of the single, uh, sing, uh, Singing Citadel. So I, I actually went on eBay and I got the uh, Mayflower uh, copy. There you go. That's uh, cool. like an LA cover. So yeah. that's going above and beyond the Call of Duty there, Dirk. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's loads of these on eBay if you if you go and look. So it's fantastic to get hold of. And this has got the weirdest cover you'll ever see because it's got uh, <laughs> it, it, it's got beams shooting out of a, out the eyes of a mouth with uh, a head with a citadel on the top of it, and it's in lurid colours. <laughs> it looks like it looks like a Hawkwind uh, album cover. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> that's incredible yeah and that cover is by bob haberfield and yeah that's it's really psychedelic if our listeners get a chance to l- look at this cover it's very cool indeed it is all right so we will quickly take a look at our high gaxian word of the day and then we'll start discussing this book so today our high gaxian word is trireme trireme and trireme Um, is an ancient Greek or Roman war galley with three banks of oars. And it is all over the beginning of this book. It is found twice on page 12, twice on page 13. It's on page 14. It's on page 16. Trireme is all over the place. On page 12, it says she had a two... That's not the right sentence. It says, Elric and Moonglum crossed the deck to see the trireme better. On page 13, it says, soon the great trireme was bearing down on them and captain and helmsman fell silent as they realized they could not evade the ram. Uh, so trireme is found throughout the text. And it's kind of a cool little word that I had not encountered before. So, so yes. So have, you, have, have you not played uh, Civilization? Civilization, no. is, it's the first unit you can, uh, seaborne unit you can get. 
Oh, there you oh. go. Civilization. There you go. No, I've never played it. But the Phoenicians, <laughs> probably, right? So you can the Phoenician triremes, so you're trading across the Mediterranean or something like that. That's right. And it's yeah. it can only it can, it's got to end uh, on the coast, so it can only move three spaces. You can't go out to sea <laughs> in it. You've got to hug the coastline with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, I guess I don't have my civilization foundation beneath me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so moving on into the library. Um, Dirk, what did you think of Michael Moorcock's The Singing Citadel? Well, it's it, it really it's a, it's a game of uh, four halves, isn't it? It's a, it's actually four stories mm-hmm. uh, in in this collection, and there's a sort of um, thematic element that's running through the three stories. Um, it, they all feature some form of journey, whether it's uh, a physical journey or a transcendental journey in some cases. Um, mm-hmm. I think the um, story of uh, the Elric story, The Singing Citadel, which starts, is, is a classic in the uh, Moorcock adventure mode because this is, this is a part of the Elric story where he is uh, walking the earth, isn't he? It's like uh, Bill Bixby, Bixby in uh, The Incredible Hulk. He's going from place <laughs> right. to place, causing destruction, killing his his friends and uh, everybody around him, um, and then having to come to terms with the destruction that he's uh, that he's caused. He's, he, he's wrestling with his ego and id um, uh, in this. So what what I really like about the the, the the Elric story in here is that this is his encounter with um, his nemesis uh, Theleb Kana, who is the Pantangian sorcerer, and he, mm-hmm. he's a great figure. He's a great NPC um, for, for for these stories um, because he 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 doesn't like uh, Elric because he is a mortal, unlike unlike Elric, who's you know descended from alien. Life, he's having to wrestle with sorcery and deal with sorcery with the limits of his human understanding, and it drives him crazy that Elric has uh, more power than him. So, right, he's the uh, Salieri to uh, Elric uh, Mozart, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he, he's not a natural genius, isn't <laughs> and uh, and so so the Elric story is really good, but you've got to say mm-hmm. that the rereading this rediscovering this and the standout story really is the great conqueror which is about alexander the great and how malabonian demons were actually uh, behind uh, alexander the great he was tampering with satanic and chaotic force forces who knew certainly not me and the good thing is at the very end of the story Moorcock does have his references there he tells you exactly where he referenced the story so it must be true yeah it must be (laughs) (laughs) my my friend M. Lightning (laughs) how about you Hoy what do you think of this collection of stories Um, I really liked it because I had not been exposed to, I might've read the singing Citadel back in sort of the dull yellow spines, but I had not been exposed to these nine Elric stories. Um, I knew about Rakir, the red archer, um, uh, who is possibly another aspect of the eternal champion. Um, but yeah, to see it at first does not seem cohesive because they're written over like a five or six year period. And the, the last story to rescue Tannalorn is actually the earliest story in Moorcock's Oeuvre, because I think he wrote it in 1962 before any of the Elric stories had even been published. Um, but as, as you point out, Dirk, there's a thematic link both in terms of a journey, there is the thematic link in terms of 
the sort of um, space where chaos and law meet in each in each case. Um, there is a mortal who is sort of caught in the balance and is could sort of privilege either law or chaos by their actions. And so it does ultimately come together, although at first it doesn't seem to. Um, so I think that's that's a it's a pretty strong little collection in that regard. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this collection of stories. I think the Singing Citadel is a fantastic Elric story. Uh, Master of Chaos is um, a small piece, but it's a really just kind of fun psychedelic story that kind of further cements this whole kind of law versus chaos thing that Moorcock is clearly really kind of refining his interest in at this point. I thought To Rescue Tanalorn was fantastic. I had so much fun reading that. And that's one of the longer stories in the collection. I didn't enjoy the greater con- the, the 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 is it the greater conqueror the greatest conqueror the greater I think the, the greater greater the greater conqueror. Yeah. I didn't enjoy it as much, and perhaps for me, it's more just uh, a um, an aesthetic thing. I don't know. Like uh, one of my least favorite Fafford and Grey Mouser stories is uh, Adep's. Um, what is it? Adep's Gambit? Right, where they go to Tyre. In, in the, they're in the real world, right? Yeah, exactly. They're like yeah. walking around Persia or something. Right. The kind of mixing of our world with other kind of more fantastic elements it just aesthetically doesn't usually work for me as well. But to rescue Tantalorn, I loved. I just hmm. thought these like five different worlds were really fun. Um, I really dug the um, the kind of twists we had with each with each gate. And... I really like that all four of these stories, even though I didn't enjoy the fourth one quite as much, are all kind of further exploring this law versus chaos thing and kind of setting the stage for Elric's, um, for what he's going to do with the Elric stories and what he's going to do with his eternal champion work. Yes. I, I think I think you're right. You're probably right about the uh, great conquer, the great mm-hmm. conqueror. Um, I think yeah. it surprised me because I wasn't expecting it. I think the other story is a bit more familiar to me. I think what I find interesting about it is that it, I suppose, it um, anticipates some of the concerns and interests that he would have later when he was developing more of his alternate history uh, ideas through uh, Colonel Pyatt and uh, those aspects of the eternal champion where they're much more about an alternate history and um dabbling exactly yeah yeah Mm. right like the von beck the von beck stories which take place in yeah 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 whereas i'm coming from somebody the only moorcock i've read prior to this is stormbringer and the stealer of souls Mm. so i i don't have a a rich back history of Moorcock to draw from. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this, that story quite a bit, probably not as much as to rescue Tantalor, which is probably my favorite stories, but uh, aside from great conqueror, um, which, which of the other stories really, you know, piqued your interest, Dirk? Well, Tantalor is a, is an, it is an interesting story and it's an interesting concept that Moorcock returns to this idea of, uh, a, a utopian it's in a utopian world isn't it it's uh it, it, it's it, it's a world of imagination and that steps between uh the different planes of existence so it's it's an intriguing premise isn't it and and you're right that that it, of course when i was reading these uh, uh when i was younger in my teenage years i was trying to work out how to turn these into adventures 
I could steal them uh, into my games. And you look at you look at that, and when I read that, I thought, this is really good. This is a set of uh, tiered adventures that um, you could put your player characters through and uh, disarm them. Is is it that sense of uh, Numenera that? Um, you know that weirdness um so mm-hmm. I, yeah from a gaming point of view i did think to rescue tan along was good what was also striking about that you mentioned rakia the red what i find fascinating about Moorcock is that he gives you very little to play with you get a real sense of these characters and what motivates them and uh, who they are in this world but he doesn't tell you anything about them other than what they're wearing so is that <laughs> is that because we confer on these characters like Elric and Rakir our own our own attitudes um or, or, or is that a gaming sensibility coming into it hmm, that's a good question I think Rakir is interesting because even though it's one of the earliest Elric stories in a way he's a much more mature character than Elric I mean it's the earliest one of the earliest Moorcock stories because it's written, again, I think two or three years before the, more, the Elric story saw print, right? But Elric is a very, uh, I keep on harping this, a creation of an angry young man, right? Yes. Whereas Rakir is almost at, at the end of his journey. He's found peace in Tantalorin, but then he's called into action one more time to save this place of rest and respite that he's found, right? And so that's almost an old man's story, right? Yes. So it's interesting yeah. that that's an old man's story, but it's at the very beginning of his career, Um and so I find that fascinating about Rakir. And I think that's an interesting thing. I think that comes up again a couple of times in Moorcock's Eternal Champion series that they are always called back to battle, but it's possible for a few of them to find peace within a mortal lifetime, but not necessarily in their immortal lifetimes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Another choice that I'm interested in is very, I mean, we, it's clear that to rescue Tantalorn takes place in the Elric universe because Elric is even name dropped within the story. So it takes place in the young kingdoms master of chaos. It, it, there, there's not a, that, at least that I picked up on a direct connection to the Elric universe, but it seems like it very well could be within the Elric universe. So I'm curious, why do you guys think that he chose to have other protagonists exploring these stories and not having this be a part of Elric's story? Um, I think the key thing was one of the things that we just struck on is that Elric is very, Elric I think is the most strongly drawn character. You're saying to Dirk that some of the characters are sort of more empty vessels for us to pour ourselves into, whereas Elric is very strongly drawn. And so to explore certain other aspects, if Elric went through, was trying to rescue Tantalorn, it would be a much more cynical vision of what he's trying to achieve. <laughs> right? Mm. Interesting. <laughs> right. right. Um, and possibly again the same thing. Maybe the whole story, um, the the uh, the Earl Aubeck story, would be much more transactional in terms of mm-hmm. what he's trying to achieve between creating the balance when you can ca- uh, expanding the sort of lawful universe into sort of the edge of chaos. It would have been much more transactional if it was Elric being the protagonist in that case. So that's fair. And and this 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 collection did come out after. Stealer of Souls and Stormbringer, but before the paperback started putting them out in the internal chronology. So this is kind of at the point where Moorcock, I think, is workshopping a lot of these ideas. And personally, I like to think that maybe the reason we have four different protagonists in these four stories is he really is setting the stage for this eternal champion idea that he's then going to continue to explore for the rest of his career. Yeah, I I think, I mean, this might sound cynical, but also, at this time, of course, he was churning out these stories at quite a rate. 
um, to fund New Worlds magazine. Um, you know, famously, uh, he'd go on an all-nighter with a, a bottle of Johnny Walker and uh, write the story. So part part of it is to um, uh, repeat some of the motifs, isn't it, to recycle some of his own material and play around, uh, give different perspectives of it. Um, I know that's a very cynical view, but I, I got that sense that, you know, the, the archetypes within here, it's just, slightly shifted perspectives on looking at the same structure mm-hmm. to draw on that but maybe in a less sort of i mean there's definitely commercial pressures right he was he was a, a pulp writer in in many senses and he's pounding things out incredibly quickly but also uh, you know he's got a background sort of a musical background so to me it's almost like a jazz musician playing yes. the same riff in different pitches and keys right to just you know to explore them in that way um so there's maybe that element too now, perhaps one of the two of you who are more who are better educated on the Moorcock universe can answer this for me. Uh, so, do the main characters from any of these other stories appear in other Elric stories that we'll be encountering later, or are these kind of their sole appearances? Um, I think Rakir Rakir reappears in Sailors on the Seas of Fate. Is that right? And, yeah. And, 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 he 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 shortly uh, he, for a short time he's uh, a companion with Elric. Okay, a bit like bit like, and then um, Albrick of Mol- Maladar. Do we do we get more stories with him, or is this kind of it for that character? I I think he reoccurs, but I'd, I'd have to check. What I do know, it's is, fine. What I do know is that um, he actually appears in an adventure in uh, TSR's Imagine magazine that was printed over in the UK. Uh, so they had a Moorcock special, and you could play uh, Albrick in uh, the scenario a D scenario so that's amazing <laughs> yeah and i actually i have a couple of imagine magazines because i have there are two issues that i think the covers are just hilarious because they had some very like homoerotic covers so <laughs> i've got two issues of, of imagine magazine here the one that's got the like the the naked man with the big cape on and he's got like a face that's just stars yeah that one and, cracked me up and let me guess which is the other one you've got you've got the one <laughs> uh, the, the thieves uh, special with a man in uh, leather on horseback is it no the no. other one i have is the one that's it's it's a city but all of the buildings just look like gigantic penises <laughs> oh, yeah i know the one yeah uh, <laughs> i mean i do remember that uh as part of this project, I've sort of looked at different covers of uh, of the various paperback editions, and the British paperback covers are always amazing, like the, the Orbit and the Grafton covers, especially yeah. the Orbit covers in particular, are always a little bit more, a little bit more explicit, um, you know, definitely more, you know, frontal, not full frontal nudity, but definitely more bare breast. The, the men are often wearing like loincloths that are more thong-like than sort of like kilts. You know, Grafton did really good additions. I, I don't know if uh, uh, your other end, appendix end, end topic, uh, Jack Vance. If you look at the uh, covers that they did for Jack Vance, they're absolutely superb. So I recommend you go and look them up. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm not familiar with those. Yeah. But at the Goodman Games booth at Gen Con, we did have a whole bunch of the Michael Moorcock Mayfield um, Mayflower covers, and those are those those are all so incredibly cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you guys got some good covers out there. Um, so this is probably a good time for us to start transitioning the conversation more in a gaming direction. So I'm curious, while you were reading this now or when you were originally reading Elric back in the day, were you seeing very clear ties to 
early Dungeons and Dragons, RuneQuest, uh, early fantasy gaming? So um, because we had the Prime Directive, my friend uh, Blythe wasn't allowed to have uh, RuneQuest. Uh, <laughs> but he was allowed to have Stormbringer, which is Chaosium's, uh, Chaosium's uh, licensed uh, game. Because at the start of the 80s, Chaosium, because of the success of RuneQuest, they um, they started acquiring the licenses for different IPs to apply the uh, D100 percentile basic role-playing system. Um, so some of you will be familiar with. Uh, I don't know if you know ElfQuest. Have you mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. ElfQuest, yeah. That's on the uh, comic book series of the same name. Later, they had uh, Ringworld. Um, the, you might have heard of one called Call of Cthulhu. So they had mm-hmm. uh, HP Lovecraft. I think I'm yeah, familiar with that not really one. too familiar with that one. Yeah. <laughs> And in the same year as uh, Call of Cthulhu, uh, Stormbringer came out. And uh, if you listen to our podcast, we interviewed Ken Santandre, who uh, wrote mm-hmm. Storm- Stormbringer. And he said, uh, you know, God d- damn it, Sandy, why couldn't you wait another year to bring out your game? Because uh, they got a joint um, Origins uh, award on that year, Call of Cthulhu and Stormbringer. So we had... <laughs> <laughs> we had uh, <laughs> we we had, we had uh, Stormbringer. And Stormbringer is great. Stormbringer, Stormbringer has a real good sense of um, the Young Kingdoms because, of course, as Hoy was saying, there's no consistency to any of the world building within uh, the Elric novels. What Ken Santandre did was take the hints and little mentions and began to codify them into a rule book because of course we didn't have the internet back then we couldn't pull it all together that way it's all in one place he he made the young kingdoms a place um that had some consistency to it that didn't exist in in the books um so for years we played in the worlds of the young kingdoms that's how we explored it and so reading the books all we were doing all the time is looking at how we could steal the adventures and put ourselves in them that's really cool i did remember my my first encounter with elric was also through deities and demigods as many things as many people found many sources um but i do remember my friend also having the stormbringer game i never owned it myself um and it was sort of mind-blowing because you looked at that and elric was you know, so much more powerful than any of the mortal characters that you could play from the Young Kingdoms. He had like 25 strength, even though he's just weakling albino. Uh, and Stormbringer did like something like 50 points of damage on any strike. He basically needs to kill. But underlying it is still, again, that, that BRP D100 system, which, uh, as, as you mentioned, Dirk, in some ways is kind of simulationist. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily deal well with those curves of, of or um, orders of magnitude in terms of power. But the Young Kingdom stuff was was very evocative, and it was it was definitely um, opening up. It's like, wow, this stuff is it's it's like I'm getting an actual transmission. Like this thing was just delivered to me from the Young Kingdoms, right? The, the stuff that Ken Saint Andre put in there, like the map was just so evocative, and, yeah. and stuff like that. I think I think it's the magic how the magic works is uh, really interesting because you have to barter with elementals and demons in order to make it work. So that that's fantastic, isn't it? Imagine doing that yeah. as, a, as a teenager. It doesn't get much better, does it, than uh, trying to argue with a demon that he should uh, help you out and be bound into your sword? You know, fantastic. Right, right. And that that obviously <laughs> is the groundwork for like the. Um, I mean. In other appendix and fiction also, but for the the patrons in DCC 
which we're familiar with, Jeff, and, and that kind of stuff like that, and having to deal with that, and having patron bonds, um, which I think is a, a great a great thing that DCC has brought back to the game that maybe sort of the more mechanistic uh, Dungeons and Dragons magic systems aren't as effective with, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think Kent San Andre, and again, also the the Chaosium again has always seemed to me to be. Uh, Chaos games have always seemed to me to be more appreciative of um, real-world conceptions of magic and mythology than sort of Dungeons & Dragons has. In other words, trying to simulate those more effectively, whether it's shamanism. Like, they've always had, like, two or three different magic systems, or each game has its magic system that is appropriate to the, the thing that they're trying to simulate. So there's that more cocky and magic system that you've just mentioned. Call of Cthulhu is very much just based on rituals. RuneQuest is all about you know, mythology, bargaining with spirits in a much more sort of almost like a Shinto kind of way, like where the spirits are very localized. And then there's other sort of greater gods that are almost like Greek gods in there. So, and of course, Dirk, you can speak a lot more to that since RuneQuest is, you know, your thing. One of the things that um, it it also brought, which uh, of course RuneQuest doesn't have levels, so you don't, it's not a a level game. Um, Stormbring was the first uh, iteration of the RuneQuest or basic role-playing that had almost like careers and backgrounds. So you could you had to roll on a table. So you, you could have a completely unbalanced party because you could have a Malnibonian where uh, it was a sorcerer, but you could also have a, a beggar uh, with uh, limbs missing. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, depending on where you, where you came from in, uh, in the young kingdoms, how powerful you, you were. So, um, yeah, three balance out of the water, but it did make it exciting and, uh, and different, you know, it was, it was a different experience. Right. Now, back in the day when you would end up rolling up a character and you ended up with a one-legged beggar, were you guys just like howling with laughter and having a great time with it? Or were people flipping tables and throwing temper tantrums about that? Yeah, we had a very small group, so um, we couldn't afford to fall out with each other because otherwise we'd stop playing. So <laughs> we were very tolerant of each other. <laughs> we had to be because we had this uh, we had this sense that we were doing this on our own. You know, there's nobody else in the world playing these games. We were in this uh, small town, Bolton, in the northwest of England. Um I suppose through doing the podcast, I've discovered that there were people all over the country thinking the same thing. You know, we've we found <laughs> it, we've unlocked this magic, but the, we can't find anybody else to play with. So, right. yeah. That brings yeah. to mind this phrase I've also heard about the difference between the UK and the United States is that in the United States, 100 years is a long time. In the UK, 100 miles is an incredibly far distance. So exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we, we turn to uh, White Dwarf magazine and uh, you look down the small ads and you say, oh, look, somebody's, somebody's playing Stormbringer. Oh, they're in Wigan. Now, Wigan is in the next town. Uh, to Bolton. It, it might as well have been on the other side of the world because how were we going to get to Wigan 15 miles away? You know? <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, I love that. Uh, since you mentioned the beggar, and of course the beggars are the army of beggars is what's besieging Tantalorin, right? And, and yeah. so this, this is people who are Basically, it's funny because you have instead of instead of seeing Tannalorn as a paradise, they see something as something that they can't have, so they want to tear it down, right? Yes, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is maybe 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 too a little too relevant to our day, our current you know political and social situation in this day and age. So I won't get to, into that much further. But do you also think that that 
and, and therefore, so to Moorcock to the Stormbringer game is also maybe around about how, for example, for Warhammer Fantasy role plays, uh, careers and, and those kind of progressions and you know, the fact that you could be you know, a rat catcher to begin with or something yes. even worse. Yeah, that that was sort of a, an evolutionary chain. Yeah, I think, um, you know, definitely around uh, game designers and game players in the UK were steeped in more Cookian um, uh, mythology and cosmology. And uh, so I, 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 on, on the podcast, I've spoken to a number of the people who were taking part in uh, creating Warhammer, and they stole mercilessly from Moorcock, from, uh, you know, f- from other games, and they, they used it to create... Um, what they created the old world um you know there's bit, bits of uh, lovecraft in there bits of uh, definitely uh, moorcock and uh, of course moorcock's very bitter about it and that's a, a sad thing that we probably w- won't see in a new edition of um, stormbringer because uh, moorcock uh, has fallen out with the games industry because he feels like he's been badly treated by it you know if you read, if you read that edition of um uh, imagine number 22 there's an interview in there and you get the sense that he doesn't really understand what it's all about this role-playing uh, business you know he's played monopoly a few times he said um but he he, he doesn't understand uh doesn't understand uh gaming um mm-hmm. but then later on you know you see interviews you can see interviews online where he's very unhappy about the way that games workshop stole the uh, chaos and stole uh he, mm. he, 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 he says that it's intellectual property theft you know he goes right. as far as that right. um, oh, and, interesting. and i mean the sense i got was that he was always quite generous at least in the early part of his uh you know in the 80s about like oh sure use that and and so i guess maybe his biggest resentment is that the games workshop is then monetizing that and then sort of cutting people off from being able to use that in their own ways also exactly exactly and i i, I think uh, he probably looks at other um other IP and how they've uh, grown and been monetized. And uh, I suppose it feels, you know, I've, I've missed out on this, you know. So, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I always think it's sad that we, you know, Stormbringer, I think, is a, a great game. I mean, there were, um, there were editions that were uh, printed in the uh, 90s. And there's a version of the game called Elric, which is um, has quite a few mechanical changes. But for me, it's not as fun as. Uh, fun as Stormbringer. It's that random gonzo uh that Ken Saint Andre brought to it that really brings out the uh the young the young kingdoms for me. Right, right. And that's an ethos now I'm really right. intrigued. And that's an ethos he had from Titles and Trolls and he seems to continue to have in all this yeah. stuff that he's continuing. And, and an underlying sense of humor, which I don't would necessarily give Gary Gygax any credit for, um uh, which I think Ken Saint Andre <laughs> does have. <laughs> um, and I guess also it's interesting because, I mean, um, Stormbringer is clearly, you know, I mean, Ken San Andre is American, Chaosium is an American company, but it leading to Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and sort of the other British role-playing games, those are so clearly British. They could not have been made in the United States. Uh, WFRP, Advanced Fighting Fantasy, I don't, those games I don't think could have been created without a sort of, the sort of feeling of crowdedness and the weight of history that exists in Europe. Whereas D&D is almost like a, a Western film. It's like wide open spaces yes. going into uncivilized areas and, and taking it for your own. And that's not the case in Warhammer fantasy roleplay, in my, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I think uh, before we started recording, I apologize because uh, in the UK, it's uh, Guy Fawkes night. And uh, outside you can hear 
uh, explosions and fireworks. <laughs> in the seventies, in the seventies, uh, in the in the UK, Guy Fawkes was seen as a, a you know, we had a very straightforward attitude uh, towards um, uh, Guy Fawkes. You know, we used to uh, drag an effigy around because this is this is somebody who tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament, uh, a Catholic. So, um, you know, we we. We in the 70s saw it as a celebration of um, executing a Catholic, a Catholic terrorist and we would every every year uh, build a bonfire and, uh, and burn it. Absolutely ridiculous. It extort, kids extorting money to buy fireworks from uh, adults, you know, that's uh, we're begging on the streets for it. <laughs> for, for, for millennials, Guy Fawkes is, is a completely different uh, figure because of the film uh, V for Vendetta. He's seen as a libertarian. He's seen as, uh, you know, uh, Guy Fawkes was right. He, he, the, the masks uh, that uh, are worn, uh, the Guy Fawkes masks used by the Occupy movement. I think that shows how, um, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Britishness but, uh, and history, but it's very more cocky in that, isn't it? How, how a, a, a folk hero, a folk figure can change and be reinterpreted um, through the eyes of chaos or through the eyes of war. Right, right. <laughs> That's fascinating. You're right. Guy Fawkes as a hero of chaos and an enemy of law. Yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one thing that cracked me up when I was reading um, To Rescue Tanalorn was that uh, they were warned as they were going from gate to gate that the next gate is the most dangerous yes. one. You're going into the realm of law. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that just really cracked me up. I loved that. But in general, I felt like these gates were really great examples of ways that you could make your fantasy gaming interesting without just throwing an interesting monster yes. at them. Yeah. You know, like the very first gate, they walk through, and as soon as they do, they are met with the like with the eyes of just like hundreds of like very, very happy people who are thrilled to see them. Oh, strangers. Hi, strangers. Come over here. And immediately they're like, um, what's happening? Like, here, come. We're about to have a big dance. Come join our dance. And that alone is pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, I think that's what uh, Moorcock uh, really lends himself to uh, gaming because of those uh, ideas that he, he throws up of uh, of adventure. And if you if you ever read his um, his guide on how to write. Uh, at speed they're really good games master ideas i don't know if you've seen those uh, i'll send you i'll send no. you a copy of them so you can put them oh, as a link great. um but yeah the, the things like you know make sure there's uh, action on uh, every four pages um <laughs> make sure don't don't think of um don't think of plot think of structure hmm. and then break your uh, 90,000 words into uh, chunks, into three chunks. And, um, you know, do 30,000 words that, you know, in that way. So you've got three acts and then take those and take those 30,000 words and then break them down into 10,000 and have scenes that last for 10,000 words. So it, it, it really helps you. uh, If you look at those, understand how to construct a, a game, a, a, a gaming session. Mm-hmm. If you have a look at those, they're really handy tips. Um, mm-hmm. And he very much encourages uh, himself and it's to to think freely around ideas. You know, don't don't tie yourself down. Just use this. This isn't a formula. This is just a, a structure for you to to play around in. 
And that's right. it, that to me mm-hmm. is, is gaming, isn't it? That's a, right, a gaming right. sensibility. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And it's interesting that you mentioned he's talking about structure and at least something as something to build on, but you never get the sense in his fiction that it's linear, right? That yes. there's a preordained c- conclusion to any of the stories, except for finally that Stormbringer as it ends. But even then, how he gets there is not because you have to hit this beat and this beat and this beat. It just happens to be the inevitable consequence of Elric's character and dealing with, you know, chaos and, you know, he can't stop. He can't just retire to somewhere in the young kingdoms and, you know, drink tea and eat biscuits. So (laughs) he tried. Uh, I mean, that's what Tantalorn is for. Right. And you can only find that respite very briefly. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but the fact that he's not, you never read his things and think, Oh, if I map this out as an adventure, it would be a railroad. Right. It's not in Elric's (laughs) case. Um, because it is contingent on his character, a lot of cases and choices that he makes. Yeah. Absolutely. So since chaos is such a big thing in this story and the law versus chaos um, um, alignment system uh, is a big part of early D&D, how do you guys feel about law and chaos as an alignment system in gaming? Hmm. Alignment. What is this alignment you speak of? <laughs> <laughs> now, and I guess that's a good question for Stormbringer. Is is law and chaos something that you have to declare whether you're working for as a character in Stormbringer or no? Does that just come up in play? Um, it sort of comes up in play, but it also is determined by your character's background, so um, where you originate from. So you'll gravitate towards um, certain magics depending on what your heritage is. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, most, uh, most players... Um, play as agents of chaos because um, why wouldn't you and the agents of law element so you have bits of uh, scientific artifacts in stormbringer as elements of law and that was actually added by steve perrin who was the collaborator with uh, ken saint andre because of course ken saint andre wanted chaos um and uh Steve Perrin brought law to proceedings. Right. Yeah. And Steve Perrin was famously the uh, who designed the actual D100 system for, for RuneQuest itself, right? Exactly. Or at least the, yeah. 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 So so he's definitely a, a codifier in a way that Ken St. Andre is necessarily, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. He certainly yeah. get that sense. <laughs> he certainly get that sense through play. I mean, I, I was only half joking when it comes to alignment. Alignment is because I'm, you know, as we started this podcast, I'm a RuneQuest player. So, mm-hmm. you know, alignment is not something that, um, you know, it's, it conceptually doesn't belong within um, Glantha and uh, RuneQuest because um, you choose your way depending on your culture. And there is an ambivalence to it. Um, those strict lines of, you know, whether something's good or evil. Um, can deter. When we were kids, we played a, a, a RuneQuest campaign called um, Borderlands, where we worked for uh, a duke, and we would go around the country. He, was, he, he inherited the frontier, he'd been restored the frontier, and we had to clear it in a good old fashioned dungeon crawl. When we played that again 30 years later, we realised that actually we were a death squad and we were committing genocide. And actually, yeah. this is a terrible thing we were doing. And we were compromised. We were compromised because of, you know, we started to understand that the world that Greg Stafford had created 
actually allows you to deal with these moral issues of what is your place in the world you know what is the role of an adventurer you know why why are you doing this you know for what do you serve mm-hmm. um and that's and that sense of ambivalence you know going back to where uh, guy fox is a folk folk hero I suppose that's what we're what we get every day isn't it um uh you know that that how do, how do these archetypes change? How do our attitudes change within them? I suppose law and chaos, as presented by uh, Moorcock in these books, uh, does allow you a framework to kind of play with those ideas and uh, where they fit. Whereas I think, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, I've always felt with D&D, it's a bit more, um, a bit less ambiguous. I mean, there's, there's, there's opportunity there, isn't there? But um, it's more clear-cut, and uh you know narrative it's driven by the world that the context and i suppose i I suppose it goes back to um morcock's antipathy antipathy towards um talking you know famously you know he 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 saw that as a terrible thing because uh, the way that it set up its very clearly defined moral structures between good and evil Yeah. yeah And I think it's it's very telling that in games inspired by Dungeons and Dragons and gaming in general, the later games took a lot from Dungeons and Dragons, but not many games stole the alignment system or yes. took the alignment system with them. Most of them kind of left that behind in D&D. Right, right. And I I, th- I think it's very telling because I do I, I agree with you. It doesn't really kind of give you the opportunity to kind of have a kind of more ambiguous story and the idea that like your character wouldn't do that you're a lawful good and it's like that's that's not really how people work you know what i mean like you you, people have morals and they have ethics and they have things that they think they would do or think they wouldn't do until they're actually in that situation yeah so then yeah you have these things like where each vampire uh, clan has its credo and you, do, you success, succeed by following that and you're playing Vampire the Masquerade as opposed to a universal yeah. code of ethics that is imposed. And I think that I don't mind the three-point alignment system because especially if it's ex- as is expressed in some games, it is kind of cosmic the way that it is in Warcock. And, you know, Lamentations of Flame Princess is kind of cosmic. Whereas in AD&D, it becomes very much behavioral, the nine-point the nine, the nine alignment, mm-hmm. uh, nine alignment system. Um, so that's a little more difficult to to follow. And also, again, I think it also goes back to the essential myth. Uh, the essential American myth is the Western, right? I mean, not we're, we're not talking about actual mythology, but I mean, our hmm. national myth is the Western, right? Of going out into unknown, unco- un- unknown spaces and claiming them for civilization, right? So that's the inherently law going out into chaos. Whereas in Europe, in the UK, various other parts of the world, you have layers and layers and layers of history of social structures that have built up over millennia. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's incredibly oppressive. So it's more fun to play like maybe the sort of the people who are sort of are opted out or not recognized by the social system. So to play that rat catcher in, yeah. uh, you know, Warhammer fantasy role play um, and to the Warhammer fantasy role plays ambiguity is that chaos is unabashedly bad, but what if law and humanity is good, it's only relatively good because you still have this incredible social injustice in the old world, right? <laughs> and yeah. to play around with that is kind of both humorous and despairing at the same time. So, yeah. 
That, that that's very true, and I suppose uh, another element, uh, just going back to that Borderlands game uh, that we played, that RuneQuest thing, that in in Europe and in um, the UK, there's also this uh, post-colonial angst that we've got as well. You know, the fact, um, you know, that our history is a history of warfare and expansionism, and you know, now it's in retreat very much in retreat um, as we're trying to, you know, it, we're straying on to politics here, but, you know, in, 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 in UK's national identity, um, you know, it, it, it's still wrangling with those, uh, with those thoughts of where do we belong in the world? What, what's, what's our role? Um, is there a role for us anymore? Um, and that comes through in um, a lot of uh, UK fiction and particularly that started breaking through in the eighties, and as you say, in, uh, in Warhammer and uh, in a comic, uh, two thousand AD, um, which was very influential on us as uh, us as kids, but also um, you know, the, and Warhammer and the, the guys at Games Workshop, you know that it, you know you've probably heard of Judge Dread, but Judge mm-hmm. Dredd is a fascistic figure, right. um, you know that, um, but he. he it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because sometimes he's a he's a hero, but he does terrible things. But he, you know, he's a he's lauded as a hero, and right, right. And, and it's playing with those those kind of ambiguities. Right, right. And, that's and not, even the people who are in favor of chaos or freedom do very amb- ambiguous things, like Nemesis the Warlock does some very ambiguous things in 2000 AD as well, as I recall. Yes. You know? Yeah. 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 All right. Sorry. Carry on. Um. Yeah, so, and, and uh, Just Dread, of course, was uh, was a game we played as well. That was uh, published by uh, Games Workshop. Games Workshop was very very influential, and it kind of probably shaped the reason why uh, RuneQuest um, ultimately had a lot of impact in the UK. People played D and D, but uh, they lost the distribution license. Um, Games Workshop. Games Workshop had uh, shops on uh, in, in all the major cities, so they were the main distributors, and they were very much into uh, role playing in the eighties. It wasn't towards the it was towards the end when it was uh, taken over by the sister company um, Citadel, where it became more of a miniatures and tabletop war gaming that we know now yeah um but yeah it's it's early origins was uh, distributing uh rpgs from the us and uh dnd uh, lost the license around uh, at the end of the 70s and so it put all the KCM products front and center because it had the license and mm-hmm. it reprinted them uh, for the uk audience so and it supported them through uh white dwarf magazine so mm-hmm. Stormbringer and uh, RuneQuest was very heavily supported um, in, the, in the House magazine. Very cool. So we are running out of time here, but Dirk, was there? I, there's a lot of stuff I have written on the page in front of me of all these other things we could be talking <laughs> about. And I'm sure you have a similar thing going on right now. So is there like one last thing that you really wanted to say about this book or about this collection of stories? Um, I, I'd encourage people to... Uh, Reach out and get it. Like I say, there's lots of one uh, on uh, eBay uh, to, to get hold of it and uh, uh, read it. And uh, I, I I wanted to mention um, one of the characters in, in, in here, uh, Lord Ballow. 
which is uh, when he, when he appears in the uh, singing citadel it's a it's a great moment isn't it uh, this uh, trickster demon um and they have this uh, dialogue between them and ultimately mm-hmm. elric calls upon ariok to uh, tame him and bring him back uh, <laughs> back to back to chaos so um that's that's a great moment uh, that i wanted to ah. And specifically how he does it too, because he just he just picks up uh, picks him up and folds him into little yes. pieces until he becomes like a little ball and swallows <laughs> yeah. him. And it's like I've I've not devoured him. This is just an easier way for me to take him back to our to our to our uh, plane. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I can see wild. that in that sort of very um sort of flat two D animation like they use in like the yellow submarine or something like that happening, right? Yes. <laughs> that scene playing out like that. Yeah. It's a great moment. And I would love to just read a quick thing that I really wanted to kind of get in here at some point too, where during to rescue Tanalorn, when they meet the guardians, they're telling, uh, they're telling them that they are human. Um, they were once human. They are still human. So they say, we are human. You spend your lives chasing that, which is it, which is within you and that, which you can find in any other human being, but you will not look for it there. You must follow more glamorous paths to waste your time in order to discover that you have wasted your time. That's I great. loved that. I thought that was really cool. That's all. <laughs> Brilliant. Hoy, did you have any last thing you wanted to get out there before no, no, we wrap up? I think this is an amazing discussion, Dirk. It's, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And uh, I hope to get a chance to talk to you soon in, in some other uh, you know, format or capacity. Oh, thanks. Oh, and yeah. Dirk, the episode, the, the, um, I, I looked it up while we were doing this. The um, Imagine Magazine issue I was referring to is number 10. Right. <laughs> so when you get a chance, look at it. 10. 10 and 13 are the ones that crack <laughs> me up. But anyways, yes, this has been awesome. So uh, Dirk, if people want to find you online or look up any of your projects, what's the best way to, what is the best way for them to do well, that? We have a site at uh, thegrognardfiles.com. Uh, you'll find links to the podcast there. I'm a regular at uh, Twitter user as well, and that's at the Grognard file, and you can hear me talk bobbins about various things on there. Um, but yeah, uh, if, if if you just listen to one episode after uh, of our podcast after this, you must listen to the interview with Ken Saint Andre because it'll make you feel good to be alive listening to Ken talk about <laughs> his experience in gaming because it, it, it's it, it's a real great interview. It was good fun. I agree. That's a fantastic yeah, yeah. episode. He's a great raconteur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Hoy, how can people find right. us? If you want to find us, you can find uh, emails at appendix and appendix and book club at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what you think. Um, we are on iTunes and uh, the other podcasts of choice. If you uh, get a chance, please leave a review so that uh, people have an easier time finding us. Um, we are also on the various Facebook uh, and MeWe and other social media platforms and Twitter at uh, on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. And we have a Patreon, Jeff. How about that? We do have a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. Because, you know, doing this show is a lot of hard work. And speaking only for myself right now, I'm now a full-time, full-time student who's also going to school, um, who's also working full-time. And I've got a weekly AD&D game. Um, and I've got two podcasts and a boyfriend who does occasionally like to see me. Uh, so, you know, I have a, we have a very, we have very busy lives and, and this podcast is a really important part of my life. And it's, and if you want to show any support for the work that we're doing here, 
please head on over to Patreon and do that. We would really appreciate it. Uh, and we'd like to give a quick shout out to a few of our patrons, Eric Johnson, Daniel Bishop, Adam Alexander, William Souter, Noah Green, Peter Martino, um, and uh, Andrew Sternick. Thank you all for your support. We really appreciate it. And our next two episodes, episode 59, will be on Robert E. Howard's Conan the Adventurer. And episode 60 will be on Fritz Leiber's The Swords of Lankmar. Fantastic. So, Dirk, thank you so much. Yeah, this thank has you been awesome. awesome. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.